the passage we're in uh, this morning is uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. If you've got a Bible, feel free to turn there. Um, it'll come up on the screen if you haven't got one, so don't want to worry too much about that if you don't. Uh, I'm James. If we've not met before, I'm one of the elders here at New Life. It's good to meet you. We're doing a series on Matthew, which got rudely interrupted by COVID when I got ill. So we're going to, the next two weeks, finish off this kind of mini-series we're doing in Matthew uh, chapters 1 and 2. And the title of this morning is, uh, What Are We Like? As in, you know, well, what are we like? Uh, but also, kind of, like, actually, literally, like, what, what are we like? Humanity, what, what are we like? And what, what can we be like? Because I know if you go into that discussion, but you, you often see the best in humanity, don't you? And people do incredible things, don't they? They do remarkable things, loving, kind, caring things. And I was uh, reading a news article this week, local news article, that was talking about a teenager who received a kidney from his own mother as a child and is celebrating a huge medal hall at two major competitions. Ryan Snell from Attleborough received a kidney from Mum Karen when he was just three years old after being diagnosed with a rare condition. Uh, he underwent his first procedure when he was still in the womb but needed several more operations afterwards. But after attending the British Transplant Games when he was four, the teenagers gone on to compete in every subsequent event. This year, the 17-year-old came away with four gold medals, um, which he followed up with one gold and three bronzes at the European Transplant and Dialysis Games. People do incredible things, don't you? You read the news sometimes, you look at the stories, you think, this is humanity at its best. And then I don't have to flick far on the the national news to read a title along the lines of... um, uh, Let me find it. A title along the lines of... UK counts pennies, we count casualties. I don't know if you saw that on the BBC News website. Um, the first lady in Ukraine talking about the counting of casualties as Putin kind of continues his advance into Ukraine and the carnage that's causing the, the death toll, the horror that it's bringing to people's lives. And you see the worst of humanity. Humanity can be great, can't it? You know, at its best, it's amazing. And actually, at other times, you think this is horrific. This is it's just just what we probably would describe as evil, isn't it? Um, and I think in this passage, we see the best and the worst of humanity, and a bit of a reason as to why that is. So let's have a look at the passage together. Then, uh, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? The king of the Jews is kind of like a Gentile, non-Jew way of saying the promised Jewish Messiah. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, in a kind of angry way, and all Jerusalem with him, i.e. they were worried what will happen. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, the gospel uh, from the scriptures, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for, because from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. 
And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, because of his plans, they departed to their own country by another way. And when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, refugees in Egypt, um, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill uh, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Estimates mean it was about 20-ish children. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So we see humanity at its best and at its worst. We see kind of humanity in Herod um, at its worst, don't we? we see, like the story of Herod, it's, just, it's, it's what we would probably describe as pure evil, isn't it? And the headline over Herod's life is, it's all about him. It's all about his throne it's all about his reign, it's his kingdom, it's his power, it's his authority, it's his reputation, it's all about his stability of his kind of kingship, it's all about his security of his kingdom, it's all about his legacy, his supremacy. And the reason that Herod's doing this is because Herod is paranoid about holding on to his kingship. He's concerned only really for his own throne and his own rule. And there's a reason for that. Um, his, he was uh, the king of the Jews because, literally like the king of the Jews, as in the sense that he was the ruler over their area, because his family believed, and so he was a Jew, but ethnically he wasn't. So to the, to the Romans he was a Jew, but to the Jews um, he didn't quite fit in. Uh, and so he was vulnerable to being overthrown, especially by a king who would have been from David's line. You know, David, the king. The promised Messiah, the, the king, was going to come from David's line. So he was vulnerable to it. And what Herod's responding to here is the news that the world, the universe, doesn't revolve around him. It doesn't revolve around him. He's responding to the news that there's a threat to his rule. That there's another king who's higher, who's above him, who commands his submission. The king. The king of the Jews is that way of saying the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's going to be like a shepherd, who's going to rule, is going to reign over God's people. They would humbly submit 
to him and enjoy his reign of peace and of right living. His kingdom would be one of love, of joy, of peace. That he would protect them and care for them as his people. And Herod responds to that news by saying, look for the child. Not look for the king, but look for the child. He's not really searching for Jesus. He's resisting him. And he wants to destroy him. Because it's all about him. And in his efforts to continue to make life all about himself, Herod embarks on this self-absorbed, obsessive defence of his uh, reign and his throne. And uh, this is a pretty horrifying passage, isn't it? This is the tip of the iceberg in Herod's life. On his CV, killing 20 children in Bethlehem, if you can believe it, because it might be a threat to his throne, barely makes his CV. It's that unimportant in his reign of terror. Have a listen uh, to this. Herod's later years, as Josephus, Josephus is a Jewish historian, records them, were dominated by his obsessive defense of his throne, with the royal family of the Hasmoneans as the most immediate threat. This writer says, earlier in his reign, his predecessor Antigonus and uh, Hyrcanus were eliminated together with large numbers of their supporters and eventually all remaining members of the family, even those who were directly related to him by marriage, his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and even his favorite wife, Marianne. Uh, They were all killed. In his final years, his three eldest sons were also killed on suspicion of plotting to seize their father's throne. We hear more generally of Herod's ruthless suppression of political suspects relying on espionage. On one occasion earlier in his reign, he faced an assassination attempt and the ten conspirators were executed together with their families. Such conspiracies and disloyalty, real or imagined, became a frequent feature of his later years. Less directly related to a threat to his throne, but a further testimony to Herod's remembered character is his alleged plan, fortunately not carried out, to have all the Jewish nobility slaughtered at the time of his own death to ensure that the mourning was genuine. Several of these incidents involved the execution of large numbers of prominent citizens, and in some cases their families and supporters were included. In such a setting, this writer says, the murder of a few infants in a small village in order to eliminate a suspected dynastic rival is quite in character. That was Herod's CV. Caesar Augustus, um, a contemporary, wrote of Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. And then we read in verse 3 that all Jerusalem was troubled as well. Why were they troubled? Well, an insecure Herod was bad news for everyone. No telling what he might do. He was so concerned for his own rule and his own kingship and no care whatsoever for others. I think we probably agree Herod is an example of humanity at its worst. At its most self-absorbed, concerned only for self, certainly not for Jesus and certainly not for his claim to be king over his life. He hears the same revelation as the Magi, doesn't he? He hears in Bethlehem, that's where the Messiah is going to be born, and that quote. But he doesn't respond. 
He's troubled by Jesus' um, existence from afar. He's suspicious. He sits. He's complacent. He uh, only listens. But Bethlehem is only about 10 kilometers away from where Herod is. He doesn't even bother to walk there to receive God's promise and help in Jesus and his loving kingship. It's easy to dismiss Herod, isn't it, as a kind of, and you know, like a Putin of this world, just as evil to demonise them. Nothing like us, and that's what I do when I, you know, when you read the news about you know, I'm nothing like that. Read about Herod, I'm nothing like that. Um, it's tempting to feel a little bit smug. Well, I read uh, one writer, and I thought um, this was quite insightful. He said. Herod is what I am deep down inside, a rebel. Maybe we need a, a little bit of persuading of that, because we're not, maybe you think I haven't killed 20 infants, um, or begun a reign of terror like Herod, but we're all capable, aren't we, at times, of being self-absorbed, aren't we, of being obsessive in our defense of our own position as kings of our own lives, of being rulers of me, of the universe revolving around us, of building self-made thrones in place of Jesus, being concerned only for ourselves, our universe revolving around us, unwilling to submit uh, to Jesus and his plans for our life. There's a passage in uh, Ephesians, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he describes humanity as sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and mind, i.e. doing things my way. I've done a few funerals um, over the last few years, and you know, one of the most popular songs at the end of a funeral is Frank Sinatra's My Way. I did it my way, lived life my way, ruled myself, king of my own life. And uh, this isn't just something that's out there. It's not just other people, it's not just the Herods and Putins of the world, but I thought uh, this writer's comment that Herod is what I am deep inside is actually quite insightful because there are times in my life where I can think I've been very obsessed about maintaining my own control over my own life. Jess will probably tell the story better and more honestly than this, but there was one time when I felt God might be leading me away from Norwich. I was quite obsessively interested in staying in Norwich for my own comfort and enjoyment because I had quite a good life there. And uh, I wasn't really interested in moving away. And one day we saw a lorry in front of us and it had J&J Wilson and the name of a place where I'd been invited to speak at the church and we felt God might be leading us. It wasn't here, by the way. And uh, I was quite kind of... I don't think I want to move there. I'm not interested in that. And I spent all night wrestling with God about it. I couldn't get to sleep. I didn't sleep that night. I spent the whole night up just saying, mm, I'll go anywhere, but just not there. I don't want to go to that place. So, no, thank you. I was kind of protecting my own rule and reign over my own life. And it doesn't stop there. Sometimes I realise I tell the kids no simply because it's going to be an inconvenience to me later on in the day. I say to the kids, don't touch that or don't do this or, you know, put that away. Why? Because I might have to clear it up later on. Because it will be an inconvenience to me. Because the kids' play doesn't matter. The universe revolves around me. 
and my comfort and how life is for me. Well, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, it might just be me, but being frustrated when you're on the roads because some driver is holding you up. Why? Because the universe revolves around my car and where I need to go and when I need to be there. And so I realized, I might not be Herod, but there are ways in which uh, I defend my position as king of my own life and the way that the universe revolves around me. So in what ways are you like Herod? What decisions do you make? What habits do you have? What behaviors do you have in order to defend your position as king of your own life? It's humanity at its worst, isn't it, when we're most self-absorbed. But also, we see humanity slightly better, don't we, in the passage. We see humanity, what I've called, humbled. While Herod is the literal contemporary king of the Jews and might likely have shown some interest in God's promised king and where he was going to be born, you couldn't say the same about the wise men because they were from another land, from the east. They weren't part of God's people. They wouldn't have naturally had an interest. In fact, um, Magi, or the wise men in this case, they're kind of astrologers, they're interested in the stars, and um, they had a bit of an embarrassing reputation in Judaism. In fact, they only, apart from this passage, they only get a negative mention in the New Testament. Basically, the Jews saw them as idolaters. They were just like, you know, they were worthless people. They were kind of, you know, a bit superstitious and, and that kind of thing. They were dismissed as people unlikely to become one of God's people. But if you've, been, if you've kind of been searching the Bible and been listening, you would have, you'll know that God is interested in the most unlikely people, isn't he? The kind of people you would never expect to become Christians or be part of God's people become Christians. And that's some of us out here today, isn't it? You think, why am I in this room? You have an occasional check and you think, how did I arrive in this church, sat with these people? Bizarre. Not where I would have anticipated being. But God overcomes, in the passage, any barriers. The racial barrier, the Magi are different from the Jews ethnically. There's a moral barrier. They behave differently. They've got a different idea of morality. But God overcomes those to bring them to Jesus. And he does it personally. You think, um, actually, the way that you think, oh, God, God would reveal himself by just kind of like thumping them with the Bible. Here you go, Magi. Bang! This is... What God is like, this, this is Jesus as king. And, but actually, what does God do to get their attention? What does he use? A star, which kind of speaks to them. They're into astrology. So God's kind of got their attention, and they're following this star. Something in creation has got their attention. God is revealing something to them using the things that they can understand, stars, dreams, etc. Because revelation from God is person-specific. He knows exactly what we're like, our culture, our background, our personality. And he can come and speak to us through creation, through life experiences, through circumstances in life, um, to speak to us. And maybe you're wondering how to meet Jesus or find God, what's the meaning of life. For the Magi, it begins with creation. Maybe that's one of the ways in which God is speaking to you. But then it's followed, isn't it, in verse 5, by the Bible, basically from the scriptures. Where's the king of the Jews to be born? He's to be born in Bethlehem. 
And as they meet with God's people, the scribes and the priests, they kind of discover where he's to be born, Bethlehem. How else do they find Jesus and meet him? By, by seeing him. They go into the house and they see Jesus. And that's often how God, I don't know about your journey, often how God leads us to him. There's something in creation, something in our life experience that catches our attention. Then maybe we get reading the Bible or meeting with God's people and things start to unravel and you start to think, this has a ring of truth about it. If you're, uh, I wonder if you're searching for God or wanting to know more about Jesus or find the meaning of life. Maybe you've been led here by something that's happened in life, something you've seen, heard or experienced. Then this is a good place to hear about God. It's a good place to ask questions. We don't have all the answers uh, here at New Life, but we'd love to help discover the answers uh, with you. Um, let me recommend, if you're, if you're doing that, uh, this book here, The Case for Christ. It's by somebody who, like Herod, was resisting Jesus originally and, and, and actually set out to disprove uh, Jesus' existence uh, and so on and ended up becoming a Christian and writing a book about the opposite, how he discovered that uh, there's a good case uh, for, for Jesus being the Christ. And so uh, if you're kind of searching, exploring, then that's a, a book well worth reading. It's a, it's a good page-turner. Um, the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. In fact, if you want it today, just come and ask me at the end and I'll happily... Give it to you, save you buying it on Amazon for eight or nine quid or whatever it is. And what, uh, what's, what do these uh, wise men experience? Well, they experience joy. Did you notice that verse? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. <laughs> I'm trying to make the point. This brought them lots of joy. Well, that doesn't really make sense, does it? But it's trying to make the point. This encounter with Jesus brought them joy. And in their joy, what do they do? They humbly fall down. And they worship Jesus, the king of their lives. They lay their gifts before him. One writer says the meaning of life is this, to devote one's gifts to God's king. To devote one's gifts to God's king. And you notice in verse 12 that this encounter with Jesus changes the rest of their life. In verse 12 it says they went home to their own country another way. They went a different way. When life becomes not about us anymore, not about defending our position as kind of king of our lives, as it were, when in life we humbly follow God's leading, make life about King Jesus, we will find joy. Exceedingly great joy. You know, joy, what does it say? It's a great line. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's, that's the experience of meeting Jesus. What else? We find meaning in life as we devote our gifts, our time, our energy, the way God's made us, the things that we're good at, to him. And we work not for our own kind of selves, but for him. What else? He changes our life and we live it another way. And we find our way home to Jesus on a different path. Herod is an example, isn't he, of... of Humanity at its worst, its most self-absorbed, concerned only for self. But the Magi are an example of what humanity can become when we follow God's leading and find Jesus. So in what ways do we need to humbly follow God's leading and make life about Jesus rather than ourselves? 
I told you that story earlier about wrestling with God about where we were going to go. Well, let me tell you at the end of the story. After wrestling with God and giving in and saying, fine, I will go there if I absolutely have to, uh, which is my humble submission to what Jesus might want to do. Um, he did move us away, but he brought us to Beckles, which we were really grateful for. Um, and he did end us sending him, uh, us to the place where I didn't want to go. And the result has been great joy, with exceedingly joy or whatever the phrase is. We found joy just serving God here. It's not been, always been easy, but it's brought us great joy. It's brought us meaning in life as we devote ourselves to him and what we're doing here. And it's made a difference to our life. We had to move house and then move house again and, and stuff like that. Not literally just this made a difference to our life and the physicality of things, but it's made a difference to our lives generally in terms of what it's brought us in life. Humanity humbled. And then finally, I'm coming into land here. There's humanity fulfilled. The headline of this passage is that Jesus is the fulfillment of what humanity was made to be. He's the God-man. He's the example of what humanity can be. He's the best of humanity. And God had given humanity many fresh starts throughout Scripture. I mean, the first one is when he makes Adam and Eve in the garden. They've got a great relationship with God. They walk with him in the cool of the evening. They've got a beautiful relationship with him. And then what do they do? They wreck it. And then humanity goes on, and what does God do? He brings a flood, starts again with Noah and his family. If you read the story of Noah, not that great after the flood either. And then again, how does he start it again? With Moses. And uh, listen to Moses' story. If I remind you of it, you might see some connection with this passage. Moses escapes infanticide from an angry ruler, doesn't he? Remember, in a Moses basket, sent down the river... Um, exiled, and then he returns, doesn't he, once the Pharaoh is dead. He delivers others, Israel, the people of God, through the Red Sea. And then he gathers the new people of God before the mountain, meets with God, and comes down with the Ten Commandments. God's new gathered people, the new humanity. So Jesus escapes infanticide from Herod, doesn't he? Escapes an angry ruler. He's exiled in Egypt. He returns once Herod is dead. He delivers others on the cross, are dying in their place for their sin, rising again from the dead so that we too might be raised, and ascends into heaven, seats at the right hand of the Father, and promises to come again to gather his new people together, God's people. Jesus is the new Moses. He's the fulfillment of humanity. Give you another example. Jesus is also the new Israel. Israel goes down into Egypt in slavery, doesn't it? The story. They're in slavery. Moses comes along, helps them escape. By well, ten times the plagues come, don't they? And then they pass through the Red Sea. Out into Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my sons, talking about Israel. To the promised land. So Jesus also goes down to Egypt. And then this kind of brings back this passage, doesn't it? Out of Egypt I called my son, Jesus, um, into the promised land. Jesus is both the deliverer, like Moses, and he's also the delivered, like Israel. Yeah? 
Jesus is the fulfillment of humanity. He's both the one who delivers us from ourselves, from being like Herod. And he's also the one who helps us be a deliverer. The church is often called in one passage, the one new man in Christ. We get called in other places, Jesus' body. Because we're both delivered and we have the privilege of being deliverers. We've got both been rescued by God from our Herodness, because he's led us graciously and intervened in our life, but he also helps us be deliverers by sharing God's love with others, caring for them, bringing Jesus' reign and rule into the world by showing people compassion, kindness, grace, mercy, and extending God's love to them. There's that bit in the passage where it says, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Why are they no more, no longer the least or the littlest or the smallest or the most insignificant? Because it's the birthplace of King Jesus, God's promised Messiah. And because Jesus is here amongst us, we're no longer just the little people, but God makes something significant out of us because our shepherd Jesus is amongst us, delivering us and also helping us to bring freedom to others. As Jesus is birthed in our hearts and calls us to make a significant contribution to our, the life of our families, the life of our friends, of our workplaces and our communities, how does this miracle work then? It's the final bit. How does this miracle work? There's a pivotal moment in this uh, passage where Herod is called the king until the Magi worship Jesus And from then on, he's just referred to as Herod. Has this moment, this switch happened in your life? Where no longer are you the king of your own life, but you've crowned Jesus and made him the king. Have you taken off your self-made crown and crowned him king of your life? And if you have, this is not just a one-off event, is it, like, Nigel was saying earlier, this is something that goes on and on, isn't it? Day by day, continually denying ourselves the rule and reign of our own lives and making Jesus the king of our lives. What unnecessary efforts are we making to defend our own throne? What aspects of our life do we need to hand over to Jesus and let him be king of? Luther writes this, humanity wants to be God and doesn't want God to be God. Another writer, if Jesus is Lord, then we are not. We need to appreciate the Magi and Herod in us if we are to appreciate the Christ for us.